0: Char got to read that wonderful text this morning from John 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all people. Those are just the first four verses of that wonderful text. And these 18 verses that Char read for us are often called the prologue to John, not so much the introduction, because they're, they're more than an introduction. They, they sort of paint a, a grand picture of the identity and the ministry of Christ himself. And they use these rather lofty and, and beautifully written words. But, but John somehow uh, only uses a few words to express really powerful truths. In fact, for centuries, Bible scholars have have marveled at how he packs so much truth and theology and and wonder into so few words. It's not really a Christmas text that doesn't tell the story of Bethlehem or anything, but it's the closest that John comes in his gospel, which John has this high goal of presenting Christ that all would believe in him. And so John lists this much higher than just the details of his birth. And so these 18 verses are, are packed with so much, it's, a, it's really a rather awe-inspiring and humbling task to preach on this text. One of the greatest and deepest and most unique sections of Scripture, and you look at it and you go, I'm going to try to explain this thing? Well, actually only a little bit of it, but... <laughs> I'm encouraged that others have struggled. St. Augustine in the third or fourth century, uh, the great church leader said this, Of this text. It is beyond the power of man to speak as John does in his prologue. (laughs) And John Calvin, the great reformer in the 16th century, said this about this prologue Rather should we be satisfied with this heavenly oracle, knowing that it says much more than our minds can take in. (laughs) So, today, on this fourth Sunday of Advent 2017, as we peer into Christmas Eve tonight, I want to address just a few key points of this passage that give us what I call an invitation into the reality and nearness of God. An invitation to each of us into the nearness and the reality of God. We're going to look at the Word. The Word became flesh. The Word became flesh and lived among us. The Word John is introducing the person of Christ as he needs to establish him and Jesus as this unique one-of-a-kind God in the flesh. The one and only real living God, and so John cho- chose then this word, Word, or the concept of Word. To the Jews that would be reading this and looking, the word was likened to God. Whenever it said the word it spoke of his presence, it spoke of his message, which was, was, was him, his message was God and his power. Jews would know the text <clears throat> from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 55, where he says, so is my word that goes out of my mouth, it will not return to me empty. The word goes out of my mouth. And it accomplishes what it's to do. So the word emanated from God to the Jewish believer. <clears throat> I need my water bottle. Thanks. But to the Greeks, the Greeks that were reading this, and those who knew Greek culture and Greek philosophy, they would resonate with this word, word. Because in Greek it was logos. The logos. In the beginning it was the logos, which meant more than just word. It, it, it meant sort of the, the reason behind all things in creation. It meant the, the, the mind of God. It meant, it meant the order that God brings. It meant God's very being. Or it meant the organizing influence behind all that happens in the world. Can you get it? It's a little bit hard to describe, but it was much bigger than word. So The Greeks heard of that logos, the meaning behind all things. And the Jews heard the message of God, the presence of God. And this word, John says, goes back all the way even before creation, in the beginning. And it doesn't refer to a moment of beginning, but it refers to a a timeless eternity back as well. And John here is establishing the pre-existence of Christ, that Christ always has existed, that Christ was not created, but was always one with the Father, with God, not next to or alongside, but, but with God. It's more of a feeling, actually, the words actually mean more of a feeling of of towards God, oriented towards God, was the Word. What John is doing is getting at the essence and the nature of this one, not identical with God, but one with God. Not identical with God the Father, but one with God. See, the the words are hard. Those real smart theological guys, Calvin and Augustine, were right. It's hard to put words to it. But these are some of the greatest words about the nature of who Christ is. It's a key pastor as we passage as we build a theology of Christ or the theology of the Trinity. We get a few more little pieces here. that This living word is also the source of creation. Through him all things were made, says John. In him was life. Zoe is the Greek word. Zoe, zoo, zoology, life. In him was life. It also was the light. That life was the light of all people. Light and dark is another powerful theme all the way through John's gospel, but especially in this passage. The darkness here is the struggle in the world that shows up here. Dark symbolized struggle. It symbolized for John, especially unbelief and ignorance among people who did not know God or who did know but were rebelling against Him. The darkness tries to overcome, he says. But it cannot. Light wins. <clears throat> the word is, is involved in creation, involved in light, and involved in life. And all of this is pointing to the one true God that we come to know in Jesus. All the life, light, and reason for being in him. No other gods. Now, I was at a conference uh, in early November and I heard a, a, a preacher there named Adam Barr, a young, young preacher. And um. He was giving a very powerful talk about truth, and he was actually, he's a guy that really works with confronting our modern culture, and he was addressing the whole issue of relativism, that everything is relative now, that there's no absolute truth unless you claim one part of it for yourself. And so he was talking about how we as believers and followers of Christ might address this issue of relativism. And he used an ancient story that comes from India called The Blind Men and the Elephant. People know that story? Some of you know the story of the blind men and the elephant. It originated in India, and it's been used particularly in Buddhist and Hindu and, and Sufi contexts. And, uh, and the story goes something like this. There's all different versions of how many blind men, but I picked the one that had six. The first, and they're, they're all, there's six blind men approaching an elephant, who no doubt is in the living room. Oh, that's another metaphor. Anyway, never find. Um, and they're trying to describe this elephant. The first one comes and feels the big, broad side of the elephant, and he says, How smooth this is. An elephant is like a wall. And the second man put his hand, and he touched the trunk of the elephant. And he feels it, and he says, How round. The elephant is actually just like a snake. The third man puts out his hand, and he touches the tusk, and he says, Oh, no. Uh, how sharp. The elephant is like a spear. And the fourth man, blind man, put out his hand and touched the leg of the elephant. And he said, How tall. The, an elephant is like a tree. The fifth blind man reached out his hand and touched the ear of the elephant and said, How wide? The elephant is like a magic carpet. (laughs) And the sixth one held out his hand and felt the skinny tail and said, An elephant is like a rope. Depending on the version you read, they end up arguing with each other and all kinds of things. But this different perspectives resonates in a culture where relativism reigns. It resonates resonates in a culture now where, where uh, where diversity of belief is valued and where multiple perspectives are promoted and welcomed. It is a story that has been used actually to justify relativism, to say, see, everybody has a different perspective. They're all right and they're all wrong, and so everything is okay. Some use this to explain why there are different religions that are all only a part of approaching who God just might be. Applied to to religion, then the story says no one has the comprehensive vision of truth. We need all the religions of the world if we're going to grasp the truth. And some say this actually proves that, that some people, when they're trying to make a point about God, are only seeing one part of it. And they're running against this prevailing thing of relativism. Now, I don't believe all this I just said. I'm just telling you that that's how this story often is used. And so as... Adam Barr laid this out before us, and people started getting a little bit uncomfortable with this. He asked this question. I love this. I've been waiting till today to share it. What if the elephant could speak? Are you with me? What if the elephant could speak? That is not just human discovery, not just perspective, not just human explanations trying to put this thing together, but God reveals himself. God speaks into the world. God speaks into our lives. He is the living word, according to John. And we learn of the fullness of the one true living God because he has revealed himself and comes to us in Christ, the living word. John then takes this high and lofty philosophical, theological thinking and he brings it the reality of God closer. Not only is Jesus the Word, but Jesus is the Word became flesh. The Word, the ordering reason of all things. The Word, the source of creation, life, and light. Light that invades darkness. <clears throat> the ultimate reality, this Word, one with God. God himself put on flesh. It's a pretty graphic word in English. Now, John could have made a softer landing with this. John could have used some easier words say, God became a man. Or God took on a body. Or God took on human form. And we hear those in other parts of Scripture when it speaks of the Incarnation. But here, rather, John chooses a word that was rather crude and blunt for the sophisticated Greeks. It was an earthy word, a real word, and it was not very spiritual at all, flesh. And even the Jews who heard this, now Jews are much more attuned to body and spirit being together than the Greeks were. The Jews are attuned to the the physical spiritual connection. But this was abrupt for them too, because the living God, in fact, in their world, you didn't even say the name of God. And to say the name of God and then to say that he took on flesh, it was hard for them to hear. The one true God, but fully human flesh. Still God, but in Jesus, a fleshy body. A fleshy body that got tired and experienced fatigue. A fleshy body that got hungry. A baby unable to care for himself. That grew up with a body that felt strong emotion. And experienced pain. Emotional pain and physical pain. And in the final day of his life endured great suffering. All of that felt in that fleshy body. The one true God put on flesh in order to speak to us. To show himself. And to be with us and identify with us. The Word became flesh and lived among us. Ah, there's the final part. The Word became flesh and lived among us, or some versions say, made his dwelling among us. Now, God, of course, had gotten involved in human history before. God had sent prophets. God had given the judges. God had given the law. And even the kings uh, were supposed to somehow represent God to the people And the priest serving in the tabernacle would try to bring the people into the presence of God. But now God is getting even more personally involved, more personally involved as the very real word of God takes on human flesh and lives with us in human form, dwells with us in human form. In fact, the word that John used that we translate lived or or dwelled is, is, is worth noting. It's a Greek word that is often translated dwells or lives, but it can also be translated setting up one's tent, which we only do occasionally when we camp or have toddlers and we set up one in the basement. But this was an everyday thing for these people. He set up his tent. Or some versions say it would even be, uh, the word would even take on the sense of fixing one's tabernacle. Oh, this is not just a place to live. That's the place where God lives. So stay with me here. You see, the tabernacle was the tent that the Israelites built to house the Ark of the Covenant. The tabernacle was that moving temple that went with them through the wilderness and lived with them for several hundred years until the temple was built in Jerusalem. And the tabernacle housed, in a sense, God's holy presence after the exodus through their wanderings into the conquest and in the Holy Land right up until the temple, the first temple. So when John says that he's dwelling with us, he's setting his tent that he's he's fixing his tabernacle among us, he's saying or suggesting, or actually more than suggesting, he's really claiming and confessing that Jesus, the Word made flesh, is the means by which we now have access to God's presence. The Word became flesh and made his tabernacle among us. This is where we come to have access full access to god now we often ignore the second part of john 1 14. we love the word made flesh and dwelled among us but the second part of that verse says we have seen his glory the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth so now john is saying that the glory of the lord the glory that was always something too much human beings could not stand to see the full radiance of god's glory too much for our mortal eyes it is now unveiled to us and now it has this glory has taken our form and our life and taken on our lot and become intimately accessible to us that which has always been far away and inaccessible is nearby readily available to us and through him god makes an invitation to nearness and reality. The reality and nearness of God. The Word became flesh and lived among us. I want to take it just one more notch, a little bit deeper and closer. Let's go now to that situation in Bethlehem. I'm going to talk more about Bethlehem tonight, so make sure you come back. The smorgasbord will wait. Consider the how and where and to whom the appearance in the flesh took place. It was a baby. <laughs> Manger, which means stable, dirty animals. Refugee, peasant, unmarried parents. Low-life shepherd eyewitnesses. Enemies and oppressors not very far away. Bethlehem is only five miles from Jerusalem. They were right up the road. It's a reminder that God dwells with us, that God dwells with us in the lowest and the darkest places. God dwells with us in the frightening places. God dwells with us in the moments of suffering, in the moments of helplessness, and in the moments of powerlessness. Some of you may know the Christian author Frederick Buechner. He's written several books. One of his books is called Relentless Pursuit. And he's not talking about ours. He's talking about God's relentless pursuit of us. He says this. Those who believe in God can never in a way be sure of him again. Once they have seen him in a stable, they can never be sure where he will appear or to what lengths he will go I love this line, or to what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation he will descend in his wild pursuit of us. (laughs) In holiness and the awful power and majesty of God, if holiness and the awful power and majesty of God were present in this least auspicious of events, this birth of a peasant's child, then there is no place or time so lowly and earthbound but that holiness can be present there too. And this means we are never safe. <laughs> that there's no place where we can hide from God. No place where we are safe from his power to break into and create the human, recreate the human heart. Because it is just where he seems most helpless that he is most strong. And just where we least expect Him, that He comes most fully. The Word became flesh and lived among us. He drew so near that this Word becomes, on this day, an invitation into the reality and the truth of who God is. And not only that, but it takes us deeper into the heart of God. It takes us to the very nearness of God wherever we are, whatever we're experiencing. And it is an invitation. And I would encourage you to consider how you might respond to that invitation today. If you know God, what steps will you take to go closer in and deeper in If you're in one of those difficult seasons right now, where God might God be active in the midst of it? If life is really good and you wish I'd stop talking about these painful things and rejoice in that, but maybe you're missing something in the quietness of God. And if you don't know God and don't know this nearness of Christ, I can't think of a better time than Christmas Eve to say yes to God and to step into that relationship to give in to his pursuit of you and say, I want to know that nearness and that power of yours in the midst of my life. Diana gave us the gift of silence a little early in the service and I want to give you that gift again for the last few moments that we would reflect on this invitation as we consider the gift of God and God with us. Holy, holy God, we thank you that you are here in our midst. You are here, you're holy. We stand in your presence. We welcome your presence. We thank you for drawing near to us. We want to celebrate you this day and tomorrow and into this next year, Lord God, listening to you, following you, trusting you. Thank you for being Emmanuel, God, with us. We pray this in your name. Amen.